chapters 1, verse 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to, not to teach false doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty spec speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're assisting on. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Carissa. <clears throat> This morning, we are starting a new series called Signs of Life, uh, Metrics of Spiritual Health. And so for the next seven weeks, to start the new year, we'll be looking at the letter of Paul, uh, the first letter that he wrote to his friend, his colleague, and his partner, and really his protege in ministry, uh, a pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was a pastor in a city called Ephesus, Paul was a part of uh, starting this church. It was a church that he knew well. Uh, so signs of life, metrics of spiritual health. What is that all about? You know, whenever you go to the doctor, no matter what your symptoms are, unless it's like you have a limb falling off or something serious like that, no matter what happens, they take the same vital signs when you come in. They check you out. So you have your weight, you get weighed, you have your temperature taken, and you get, um, usually you get that thing stuck in your ear, and you have to stick out your tongue and say, oh, and all that stuff. So why do they do that? No matter what, what, what's ailing you, no matter what illness uh, you're coming and presenting, they always check for the same signs. Why? Well, it's because they have something to compare uh, your previous health your future health, and your present health too. These are the metrics that the world of physicians have decided are the metrics of physical health. And so there's regular checkups on those. So here, at the beginning of the new year, both personally and corporately as a church, we'll be looking at seven signs of spiritual life, seven, seven metrics of spiritual health in the book, uh, the letter of First Timothy. One of the reasons why, one of the reasons I'm drawn to, to this uh, theme and to this book is because as people and as churches, I think we're very prone to look at the wrong signs and to use the wrong metrics. And when we do that, we invest in the wrong things. We use our energy in the wrong places. I shared this a few weeks ago, but there's an adage in the business world, and the adage is, what you measure is what you get. And that principle, uh, although it doesn't perfectly apply to the other areas of life, it does apply to our personal lives and even to our spiritual lives. What should we be looking at as churches? Uh, is it how big our church is? 
how many programs we have, is it how much money we have, whether we have our own facility or not. Those are the traditional metrics people use when they think about church. What about for our spiritual lives? When I talk to people and ask them, how are you doing spiritually? Often, people will talk about certain metrics, and they'll talk about how much they're reading their Bible or not, how much they're praying or not, maybe how much they feel like they know about the Bible, or maybe how much they're doing at church. Now, all of these metrics, church and personally, I'm not saying those are wrong or bad. I think those are signs we should pay attention to. But for the next six weeks, we'll be asking, are those the metrics of the Bible? We'll be looking at 1 Timothy to answer that question. This morning, we're going to look at the ultimate sign, the most important metric, love. If you're following along and taking notes in your bulletin, you'll see we're going to be looking at three aspects to this. First, we'll look at the urgency of love. Second, we'll see the ultimacy of love. And lastly, we'll talk about our capacity for love. First, the urgency of love. Something I didn't realize until I started reading this letter this week again is that 1 Timothy is probably the second most urgent letter in the New Testament. The most urgent letter, in case you're wondering, I, I think most scholars would agree that it's the letter to the Galatians. Paul's very urgent. You can tell from his tone something very, very serious is happening there. But 1 Timothy is actually very close. Where do we see that? Well, look again at verses 1, 2, and 3 there. Glance down at that with me. It was customary at this time when you were writing letters back and forth, the most um, common form of communication. And it was Paul's uh, custom to begin letters in this way with a warm greeting, with a, hey, how are you doing, basically? It's me, Paul. Remember that time when, hey, remember the connection that we had. Often Paul will begin his letters with encouragement and thanksgivings. We saw that last week or two weeks ago in Paul's second letter to Timothy. So he wrote to the same person. And there he said, uh, Timothy, I remember you. And I long to see you. I remember your tears. I remember your grandma and your mom. I remember their names. That was the way that you began a letter in the ancient world. But if you look again here, really none of that's here. Paul is getting straight to the point. After two short intro verses, basically saying, I'm Paul, you're Timothy. Verse 3, he goes straight to the point and says, as I urged you. No thanksgiving, no encouragement to the congregation or memory shared. He's straight to the point. Now remember, this is one of Paul's closest friends in the entire world. And he doesn't even take the time to get to all that. Scholars note that Paul doesn't even really use correct grammar here in verse 3. You can even see it in the English. It says, as I urge you, he never really finishes that thought. What is he saying? Paul is saying, as I urge you before, I am urging you now. This is urgent. Now the question is, why? What is so urgent for Paul that he would throw away all those customs and get right to the point with Timothy? And the answer is, Paul clearly was deeply concerned because he saw something happening in this church that was one of the warning signs, one of the danger signs for spiritual 
unhealth. One of the most important and dangerous spiritual signs. And he wrote this letter to Timothy, basically saying, you need to look at this, you need to address and stop this before the entire church is infected. What did Paul see or what did he hear that was going on? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. It tells us a little bit about that. It says, the things that people were teaching or paying attention to in this church were all wrong. They were promoting empty speculation and controversies. Fruitless discussions were going on. So what was happening? A lot of time was being spent talking about the Bible, talking about spiritual matters. But Paul is saying it was all wasted. It was all futile. All their efforts were for naught because they were missing the very center point and heart of God's purpose and plan, which is love. In verse 4, Paul says it's not promoting God's plan. The goal of all our instruction, verse 5, is love. Now let me just take a moment to apply this urgency and have us reflect on the urgency that Paul has here in this letter. In our lives, which are very busy, most of you, your lives are very busy and very full. You have so many choices. We have so many options. We have so many demands that are coming at us. And you probably feel that. I do in a fresh way here at the new year. It's like, that was good. The holidays were upon us, but whoa. Now life is hitting me. All these demands. So many things seem urgent. Now, the urgency of this passage is something we need to feel. How urgent is it? The question I want you to consider. How urgent is it that we love? How urgent is it that we selflessly and sacrificially put the needs of the other people in our life above our own? Have you heard of the Eisenhower box? It's the box. I think I have a picture of it for you. It's the urgent, important box with the four quadrants right there. It said that this was like President Eisenhower's secret to productivity. So he used this box to make decisions about what to do. It's a time management tool. So there's urgent and important right there in Q1. That's like, if you have kids, feed my children. The baby is crying. <laughs> Take care of the baby. That's urgent and important. Pay my rent and mortgage when it's due. Then there's urgent, not important, like answer the phone when it's ringing, uh, answer emails that come in. Then in quadrant three, urgent, not important, or not urgent, not important. Quadrant four, things like, okay, it's not urgent, um, but it is important. I need to build up my savings account. If you're in school, you're probably thinking, I'll study for that test coming up next month, like later. It's important, but it's not urgent. And then we have the not urgent, not important, which is like binge on Netflix, Scroll Twitter and Facebook for like hours on end. That's quadrant four. The reason I share this is because Paul's urgency here is telling us that for the Christian, love is always in quadrant one. It's always in this box. And it wasn't happening for this church or a large group in this church. Paul is saying this is how God's plan works, how it's promoted. Look at verse 4. The, the word there for God's plan, it's a little bit of a different word. It's the word 
oikonomia. It's where we get the word economy. Paul is saying this is how God's economy works, which is very different than how our plans and economy often works. Because love is not efficient. It almost never happens when we're in a hurry. How often have you said when you've been in a hurry, wow, that was such a loving interaction that I had. I made some really loving decisions when I was rushing and in a hurry. Love will almost always look like it's a waste of time. So God's idea of what is urgent is very different than ours. The things that we think have to happen now and quick, God says, no, that, that can wait. The things that we think can wait, we say, I'll get to that later. God says, no, those things need to happen now. This is my urgent work to build into your life a life of faith and love. I've been reading um, the story of King David and King Saul, King Saul and King David in 1 Samuel. Uh, over the past um, few, few weeks in our CBR reading, you know a little bit of the story of, of Saul and David. Uh, God told David, while Saul was king, he said, David, you're going to take Saul's place. You will be the anointed king. Saul had failed. He had disobeyed God, and he was going to be removed as king. But as I was reading the story, I was realizing um, what was so important in David's life, something that God said, this is important, David, you will be king. It didn't happen until 15, at least 15, maybe 20 years after God had told David. David had to experience being attacked. He was kicked out of his home. He was pursued, he was hunted, he was confused, he was alone. And all the while, I'm sure he's wondering, is it not important to you, God, that I'm king? Didn't you say, didn't you promise that you would do this? But God didn't have the same urgency about it as I'm sure David did. As I was reading First Samuel and thinking about that, it just so happened that the psalms that we've been praying and reading together as a church were the psalms written by David during those years, 15 to 20 years, where he was wandering and wondering what is going on. And what we see from those psalms, psalms in the 50s and the 60s, is that God was doing his urgent work of shaping and molding his heart. That David might learn to trust God and be a person whose character is shaped by love. So let me encourage you with this. If right now where you're at, if God's plan doesn't seem to be matching up with your plan, if you're waiting on God for something, something important to you, and you're asking, why is it happening this way? Why is it taking so long? Why do I have to wait? Let me encourage you with this. The things that are important to you are important to God. But the things that are urgent to you may not be urgent to God. But God is always about his most urgent work in the lives of those who trust in him. To shape you into a person of love. It's the urgency of love.
move to the next point. The passage goes beyond just saying that love is an urgent matter. It's saying love is the ultimate matter in life. It is the most imp important metric of all, most important, most urgent. It's not just in quadrant one. It's always at the top of quadrant one. There are a lot of things that are hard to understand in the Bible that aren't quite clear, but this is crystal clear. Love is the ultimate sign of genuine spiritual life. Love is the most important metric of spiritual health. This is what Paul says to Timothy very clearly in verse 5. He says, the goal of all of our instruction is love. This is what Jesus taught. Pastor E.C. already talked about this in our time of confession. Jesus said, love for God and love for people. That's the summary of the law. Paul writes in another place, Romans 13, he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. He who loves has fulfilled everything God wants. And in 1 Corinthians 13, also in our time of confession, Paul says, apart from love, other signs of spiritual life we might look to and say, that is a sure sign of spiritual life, such as spiritual influence, spiritual gifts, and accomplishments. Even martyrdom, Paul says, nothing, that is nothing without love. The Apostle John says, the person who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If you look at verse 5, the word for goal there is the word telos. It means the end, the goal, the aim, the ultimate goal. Paul is saying of what we teach, of why we teach is love. Because love is the ultimate sign. Love is the ultimate and most important spiritual metric. That we selflessly and sacrificially seek the good of the other people in our lives, even above our own. This year, um, we actually started it this summer. Our family has decided to start to set goals. Um, we set all kinds of different goals, adventure goals, fun goals, physical goals, education goals. And it's fun for us to encourage each other when those uh, goals are met and it helps us uh, focus our time in our lives. And so, um, when we set goals, one of the reasons we set those goals and then remind ourselves of these goals is why. So we stay committed to those goals when things are difficult and hard. When it's hard for us to stay committed to meeting those goals, we remind ourselves of the goal. For example, if you're running, if you're exercising, if you're trying to get enough sleep, if you're trying to wake up early, if you have to do chores or work to earn extra money, you say, why am I doing this? And you remind yourself of the goal and you say, okay, this is hard, but I'm going to stay committed to following through because of the goal. Paul is telling Timothy here, stay committed to two things. These two things will be very difficult for you in your situation. So Timothy, remember the goal. These two things, every person, every church needs to stay committed to in order to move towards the goal of love. What are they? One is difficult people, and two is doctrine. Let's, let's talk about each of those difficult people. He says to Timothy, verse 3, I urge you to remain in Ephesus. Now, someone has to tell someone else, I urge you to remain. I urge you to stay. What does that mean the other person is thinking? 
They're thinking, I think I want to leave. <laughs> I think I want to go. This is too hard. From the whole letter, from the situation, what we know of what's happening with Timothy there in Ephesus, he has difficult conversations ahead of him with difficult people, many who disagree with him. And so he's thinking, this is not easy. Maybe there's something else or somewhere else for me to go. So Paul says the goal, Timothy, isn't for easy relationships or finding people who agree with you or make life easy for you or don't make any demands or ask anything hard of you. The goal is love, so remain, so stay. And this is something very hard for us. In our time of freedom, we want to have our options open. We want to have our choices out there before us. Paul is saying love, real love, can only exist where there is commitment. And we know that intuitively. If, if, we, um, if, 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 if somebody says, I, I will remain your husband, I will remain your wife, I will remain your friend, I will remain your parent, as long as it is easy to do so. <laughs> but if it's difficult, I will find a new spouse, a new friend, a new child, a new parent. There's, there's no possibility of love in that. So when the people in our lives become difficult for us, Paul is saying stay committed. Not just physically present, being there, but stay committed to the person because the goal is love. A few verses later, Paul gives us the perspective that enables us to remain. He says, reflecting on his own life, he says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What this means is, everyone is difficult, especially, and most of all, me. Everyone is difficult. Everyone is a difficult person, especially, and most of all, me. That's the perspective the gospel gives us to stay committed in difficult relationships, knowing how difficult we are. This is a membership in Baptism Sunday, and so I have a special message for those of you who are joining as members. You are committing to a community of difficult people. We save that till after you join, just so, so <laughs> let you know. Why would anybody do that? Why not keep your options open if things get weird, if somebody says something you don't like, find a new community. Why would you commit? Why would you tie yourself down? Well, the answer is in verse 5. Because the goal is love. One author says it like this. Membership in a local church means joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future together. Paul says, remember the goal because people will be difficult. He also says, there's another difficult thing you need to stay committed to in light of this ultimate goal. And that, that thing is doctrine. Verse three, he says, remain in Ephesus so you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. 
Now, this might seem backwards to us or maybe a little bit confusing. Love and doctrine doesn't a focus and a strong commitment to doctrine, to what is true and false and what is correct and incorrect. Doesn't that just lead to conflict and disagreements and divisions? Doesn't that even lead towards wars between religions? Or less serious things like being preoccupied with stuff that really doesn't make a difference in this life. Minutia and conversations that have no bearing on actual practical life. It might be your experience that the people who are most committed to doctrine that you know are also the most dogmatic and unloving people that you know. Now, on the one hand, in 1 Timothy, Paul is saying, yes, that's right. Doctrine can destroy love. He says people are paying attention to myths and endless genealogies. They promote speculations. They make controversy in verse 6. He says, some have departed from love. He says, from these things that build love. And he turn, they turn aside to fruitless discussions. And later in chapter 6, he says, doctrine can cause an unhealthy interest in disputes, in arguing about words. And from all this comes envy and quarreling and slander and suspicion and constant disagreement. And some of you are saying, I've seen that. I've seen when doctrine does that. Well, what's the way he says to address it? It's not no doctrine, and it's not less doctrine. There's an inescapability of doctrine, really. When you say, I don't believe in any doctrine or any truth, well, that's a doctrine in and of itself. If you say, all we need is love, that's a doctrine as well. Paul says the answer is commit to having the right doctrine. And the way that you can tell right doctrine from false doctrine is by the goal, which is love. There's a quote in your reflection quotes in your bulletin from St. Augustine 1,500 years ago. He said this in his book on Christian teaching to Christian teachers. He says, anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures, the whole Bible, or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding... Build up this double love of God and neighbor has not yet succeeded in understanding them. This is the test. This is the ultimate sign whether you understand the Bible. Do you understand the goal is love? In Timothy, throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and even Titus, it's interesting that the opposite of false doctrine, when Paul talks about false doctrine, he doesn't say the opposite is true doctrine. He says the opposite is sound doctrine. He uses the word sound. Sound was a medical term for healthy, for hygiene. It's where we get the English word hygiene. Now, it doesn't feel loving if you have small children, if you know a small child. It doesn't feel loving to a small children to tell them, take a bath. They say, I took one last week. Take a bath. <laughs> it doesn't feel loving to a child to say, brush your teeth. Yes, every day, <laughs> brush your teeth. It doesn't feel loving to a child to say, it's your bedtime. Now. But if you said, baths are optional, brush your teeth whenever you feel like, go to bed whenever, you're putting the health of the child at risk. It's sound parental doctrine to tell your children, take baths, brush your teeth, and get enough sleep. 
reason I share that is because there are parts of the Bible that are very difficult for us. The Bible tells us things all the time that we don't want to hear. We, didn't, we wish we didn't have to hear. We like to hear the parts about love, but we don't really like to hear the parts about law in the Bible. And here, Paul is putting both of those together. Look at verse 7. Paul says, these false teachers, the ones who have false doctrine, have missed the whole point of the law. Law and love are not opposites with God. They're synonyms. As one person put it, to sin against the law of God is to sin against the love of God. The most loving thing for God to do is to tell us what brings us help to our lives and to others. That's sound doctrine. Paul is saying the ultimacy of love. Timothy, remember the goal. Because it's going to carry you through when people get difficult and when doctrine becomes difficult for you to hear. The more we learn sound and healthy doctrine, on the one hand, and the more that we stay close and committed to people who are difficult, what will happen? What will happen? the more we will see how unloving we are. God's word shows us hard things about ourselves, about our selfishness and self-centeredness. And close relationships reveal things we didn't even know we were in us. So many times people say, until I got married, I didn't realize I could do that or say that until I had kids who got very close and became very difficult. I didn't know I was like that. This is hard for us but it is very healthy for us. It is a loving thing for God to do in our lives because it is how God grows our capacity for love. How does that work? It works like this. When the love of God in the law leads us to the love of God in the gospel, might be a little bit hard to understand and abstract. Paul tells us what this looks like personally in the first person, reading again from verse 15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. He says, this is trustworthy doctrine. It deserves full acceptance. There are two parts to that. I am the worst of sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world for me. This is the most central and the most difficult, but the most powerful of all doctrines of all. Part one, I am more unloving and unlovely than I'll ever know. Part two, but I am more loved unconditionally than I'd ever even dare imagine. How does this grow our capacity for love? Well, Paul says here in verse 5, love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we might ask, how does a heart become pure? How does a conscience become good? How does a faith become sincere and genuine? No hypocrisy, no pretending, no masks. There's only one way the Bible says this happens. It's that knowing, no matter how impure our heart is, no matter how heavy our conscience is, no matter 
what it is we're trying to hide behind the masks. That God will forgive us through the work of Jesus Christ. We can be forgiven because Jesus' greatest act of love, his death in our place, covered all the debt from our failures to love. Let me close with a story from Luke chapter 7. This is a story that I think best illustrates how our capacity for love grows. It's a story from the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited to eat in the house of a Pharisee. And while they were eating, a woman comes barging in, uninvited. And it's said that she was a woman who was a sinner. That's all we're told about her. So she had a very notorious reputation in the community. So she came in, she barged in with, her, with perfume, says she was weeping at Jesus' feet. And you have to picture it. This is a gathering mostly of, of religious professionals. The woman is barging in. She has perfume. She's anointing Jesus' feet. She's taking her hair and wiping his feet clean. And while all this is happening, the Pharisee is sitting on the side, and, and in his mind, he didn't say it out loud, but in his mind, he's wondering, does Jesus know who this woman is? A sinner. And Jesus, being the Son of God, detected these thoughts in the Pharisee and said, Simon, his name was Simon, I, I have something to tell you. Go ahead. And Jesus told him a story. He said, um, imagine this story. If a, credit, if a creditor forgives someone 500 days worth of their wages and a creditor forgives another person 50 days worth of their wages, which one will love this creditor more? Well, the one who was forgiven more. Jesus says, that's right. The one who is forgiven little loves little. There are a few ways that I'd like for you to hear that, depending on where you're at. Some of us never get down on the floor weeping. We don't believe we are really all that hard to love or have all that much to forgive. We look down at others, we criticize others very easily. Inward, inwardly, we believe we're better than other people. Your capacity for love will grow when you get down on the floor and you weep at the feet of Jesus. That's the work of the law of love to show us our failures, to drive us to the feet of Jesus. Some of you need to be there. Some of us, on the other hand, we never get off the floor. We don't believe we're worthy to be loved or to ever get up from that posture. We think we need to stay on the floor and keep weeping. Keep wiping the feet of Jesus. Keep anointing him. You know what Jesus says to the woman? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There is a time to rise up in the forgiveness and in the love given to us by Jesus. We don't stay in the posture 
broken down by the law, we stand up and we go in the love of Jesus freely given to us in the gospel. There's no more to do. So we go and we love as we have been loved by him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we know you are love. It is who you are. It is who you've always been. When we think about our own inabilities and failures to love, sometimes it seems impossible for us to become more loving, to grow in our capacity to love. I pray for all of us where we need to weep and fall at your feet. I pray that you would do that in our hearts. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Bring the loving word of your heart doctrine to bear where it needs to be borne by us. And where we need to get up and stand in the love that you have already worked on our behalf. I pray you would enable us to get up and stand and know with 100% assurance you would fill our hearts with the reality that we are loved despite our failures to love. Shape our hearts to love like yours. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Sing a final closing song all together. <laughs>